Well, one of the New Testament's most dynamic and relatable characters, and I think it's safe to say for just about, if not all of us, by far most of us believers, uh, is the Apostle Peter. Now, for many believers, we often can find similarities between him and ourselves. Sometimes we kind of laugh at some of those similarities, but there are similarities, especially in his documented moments of zeal and how he is, displays his zeal for the Lord. Uh, but I have to say that what, I've, what I think I love most about Peter is his undying devotion. His undying devotion and how he, he never let past failures keep him from seeking the Lord, who is most merciful. And he, he had to learn this. You know, Peter comes across as passionate, um, a bit unrefined at times, especially by the world's standards. Uh, but the love of Christ, the love of Christ is so well absorbed by him that it just seems to burst forth towards his brothers and sisters in the Lord. In short, Peter is an encouragement to our faith, I think. He's an encouragement to us to, to love Jesus as he learned and learned to love Jesus and see how the same patience and tenderness that the Lord gave to him the Lord offers to us as well. It wasn't too long ago when, that when we went through Peter's first epistle that I was able to preach through that. And by now, by God's grace, we're going to safely make it through Peter's second epistle and sample some more of his undying devotion to the Lord and really how we too can be so resolute, so confident in Christ. It's one of the things that Peter desires for us, and we'll see this in this, this letter. Now, if you're looking for a theme that applies throughout Peter's second epistle, it would be the theme of the knowledge of God. It's going to come up time and time again as we go through the scripture here. It's living in the knowledge of God and through the knowledge of God. The apostle's strong desire for his readers his strong desire, motivated by his love for Jesus and his bride, is that God's people would really and truly know their God and their Lord. Know their Savior. And very important, very important, not knowledge for the sake, for the sake of knowing, right? Uh, for that would be a knowledge that, that puffs up. One to brag about, if you will. Peter aims for a knowledge of God that, that richly serves a stronger faith in the Lord. That's what he's aiming for in this letter. You know, tradition has it that Peter wrote this letter shortly before his death, which means that this letter would have been written sometime between uh, AD 60 and 68, some in that time frame. Uh, Peter, in fact, he notes in his letter, the timeliness uh, of his writing to them in regard to his imminent death. And we see that in verse 14 of chapter 1. You can see that for yourselves. Tradition also has it that Peter's audience is more or less the same 
the same group of, of Christians that he wrote to in his first letter, a, a largely Jewish Christian group that were scattered throughout um, uh, Western Asia Minor, all right? Now, this is not a certainty that that's who his audience is, uh, but much weight has been given to the apostle's statement that he makes in chapter 3, verse 1 in his second letter, referring to what we know as his first letter in, in the scriptures. Again, it's not a certainty that this is his audience, but truly the authenticity of Second Peter and the quality of Second Peter, they don't suffer. His letter does not suffer in those regards if it happens to be a different group of Christians that he's writing to. Now the major portion of Second Peter is composed of the apostles' warning of and, and his castigation of the opponents of his and his readers, their major opponents here. Now, one particular attribute to note that seems to stand out about the opponents in comparison to the true faith of the readers is just how faithless they are. That is, the faithlessness of the opponents, okay? Now, Peter describes how these faithless men that will be among them, found among them, that they seek to twist the truth capture the weak among the flock. Also, to make sport of the prophecies of God, of the prophets of old, and of the apostles as well. And you can see Peter, as well as other apostles, Paul in particular, rigorously defending the prophecies of God. Now, the apostle Peter informs us about these opponents in his letter that their condemnation is from long ago is not idle. Their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And that's one of the driving purposes of these opponents that, he, that we're going to read about and learn about is to discourage hope in the coming day of the Lord. To not only bring his bride home to him, but to exact judgment on the world and consummate all things unto himself. That is one of the things that the opponents are aiming to discourage in the faith of the believers. Well, consequently, Peter's desire for his readers, as given in the first part of chapter 3, is that they would remember the prophecies given in Scripture regarding the Lord's return. They remember these things. And in remembrance, be prepared for the Lord's return. That is, as Peter writes, diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is in large part what we find and will find as we go throughout this letter. So let's turn to our text this morning which is going to focus on Peter's greeting. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be on verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of 
of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, here we find Peter introduces himself. As you would expect in a greeting, he introduces himself to believers with a like faith as himself and others like him, a like faith. And he offers a prayer. He offers a prayer for ever-increasing grace and peace, which is found by way of a fuller knowledge and recognition of God and of Jesus. And one question that I believe helps us understand this text is this. You know, what is gained? What is gained in coming to a fuller knowledge and recognition of God and of Lord Jesus? What is gained in, in this knowledge? By God's grace, I will attempt to share a few blessings from our text that are to be had coming to a fuller knowledge of God. And these are going to make up my outline this morning. Number one is a faith of equal standing with the holy apostles, that like faith that he talks about, a faith of equal standing with the holy apostles. Number two, multiplied grace. Multiplied grace, that is a blessing to be had in a fuller knowledge of God. And thirdly, multiplied peace is also a blessing to be had in a fuller knowledge of God. So, for the first blessing, a faith of equal standing, Peter writes, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. By ours, Peter means those who were with him. Possibly those who were with him at the moment he's writing the letter. Or dictating the letter, but it would include himself. In other words, the same precious faith of his fellow servants of Christ, including the apostles, like faith with them. Now, I think that's comforting, don't you? Very comforting that those who are truly in Christ to have their faith described by an apostle as being one that is like an apostle's faith. It's very reassuring when I realize in my weakness that we have common ground with Christ, with heroes of faith. And that's what the, Peter's telling them right here. You know, this faith was something he says was obtained. Now you could say received. Or, or granted, just as well. But the sense of the word here of obtained is the same idea as to obtain by lot. Obtain by lot, like casting lots. So it's something that we should see as something that's given, not taken. It, it has the sense of divine origin. Of course, Peter really makes this all the more clear in writing, it has been obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a faith of like kind of the apostles and the other servants of Christ, or a same kind of 
faith or the same value of faith or the same honor in terms of faith with the other believers and apostles. As other translations actually put it that way, uh, honor or value. It's not to be confused with a faith of like measure with the apostles. Surely the faith of the apostles is something we all strive for, but few of us have ever attained. So it's a like, a faith of like kind, not like measure. Now the faith that we've been given in Christ, it carries the same privilege before the throne of God as those who lay the foundation of our faith and practice. That's what it means when it's a like kind of faith as the apostles even. It carries that same privilege before the throne of God. Now, Peter wants us to ask ourselves a question, I think. And we're going to see this more clearly as we go on throughout the rest of his letter. But what do we intend to do with a faith like this? You know, what should we be doing with it? Peter introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, other renderings of the scripture say a bond servant or even a slave of Jesus Christ. Now each of these is correct. The sense of the noun here is ownership. Ownership or control. Peter is attesting to the fact that he belongs to Christ and is in his control, at his mercy, and Christ is his master. It's an amazing thing. At one time, at one time, the apostle denied Christ, didn't he? Three times. And one of those times, under the pressure of a simple servant girl. You knew, you know that had to eat at him. When he wept. But the apostle became in the power of the Holy Spirit with a strong faith, one who would be willing to suffer martyrdom for the name of Christ. That strong of a faith for relatively soon after writing this letter, as again, as he attests to himself, himself in this letter, he would suffer death for Christ's sake. Believed to have suffered death by crucifixion, like his master. Uh, tradition states that he did not consider himself worthy to die like his master, so he was crucified upside down. This is the faith that the apostle attained to through the work of the Spirit. There is no higher honor than to be a servant of God. Whatever servanthood God has granted to you, there is no higher honor. As one ancient philosopher put it, to serve God is to reign. The most honorable men in scripture and in church history as well, they boasted a right in being considered a servant of the Most High. It was not Christ himself 
in his earthly ministry, a supreme example of servanthood. The King of Kings. And brother or sister, you may not have an official title of some sort in a public way or in a church office, but if you humbly wear the title of servant before your fellow saints, then glory, rejoice in the fact that someday you will hear your master say, well done, well done, my good and faithful. Enter into your rest. My good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. If that can't motivate you, then just what is your profession? This faith of equal standing that Peter writes about was obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ in union with the righteousness by it, through it, by way of the righteousness of God. Beloved, this is our lifeline. It's our life preserver, Christ's righteousness. We have only to lean on him, depend upon his shed blood and his righteousness. We have nothing, nothing of worth to add to this only to be still and let him work for us. But even then, even then in our natural state, we can't do it. We can't do it. He must do it for us. Praise God for his righteousness that works for us and continues to work for us. You know, how how poor and pitiful we are, so utterly undone that his spirit must apply Christ and his work to us in every way. In every way. Our, heart, our hearts, our souls must be opened by him, not only to know Christ, but even to desire him and follow him. Another way I think that may be helpful to understand how Jesus' righteousness grants us our faith is to see its applied equity. It's applied equity. And this is what I think Peter's aiming at. Let me explain. You know, we have an equitable privilege allotted to us by Christ Jesus. One that accomplishes judicial integrity. Even the vilest sinner among us, once he receives saving faith in Christ, he stands just as sure before the throne of God as Peter and Paul does. It's not our righteousness or their righteousness, the, the, the apostles' righteousness. But it is Christ's righteousness that bears the load required by faith that God calls worthy. That God accounts toward the saved sinner as righteousness. It was the same for Abraham. And it is the same for his children of faith. 
Lastly, Peter writes that it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of Scripture's most clear testaments to the deity of Christ. Peter, in verse 1, refers to the one and same person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus, who is both God and Savior. This is what Peter's written regarding the faith that we have by righteousness of God. But why? Why has he written it? Why would he write this about having a like faith as himself and others? Now, what may have prompted Peter to make special mention of his readers possessing a faith of equal standing with even his own faith, along with all the other servants, is their need to be encouraged. They needed a shot of adrenaline. Peter understood this about them. The opponents that I mentioned earlier, those opponents revealed as false teachers that will be among them, Peter says later on, are likely among them. They're going to test the strength of their faith. They're going to question their faith in some ways. We know what that's like to question our faith. Knowing that they already have all they need in Christ with the faith they already have is a very great encouragement. So take special note here, beloved, that whenever possible, encourage others and encourage yourself in faith. As we have an example here by, by Peter. Now, Peter has more to say in the first chapter about how they should supplement their faith, and we'll get to that, how they can supplement it so they can withstand the testing, that testing that we know providence brings. He'll say more to that as we go through chapter 1. But even for the poorest of saints, the weakest of faith, yet still having a saving faith, that faith will see final victory in Christ. And that, beloved, is a faith that moves mountains. On that note, spiritual pride should not be taken for a strong faith. That can happen. We can get prideful about what we know and think that means I have a strong faith. We've seen it time and again. And people that boast in that such a way and then difficulties come. And their faith, if they are truly a believer, takes a mighty blow. Spurgeon once said, quote, Brethren, we are never so weak as when we feel strongest. And never so foolish as when we dream that we are wise. We are good at deceiving ourselves in this regard. You know, what I take from this is that when I am feeling confident in my flesh and whatever skills and abilities I may possess by God's grace, when I'm feeling confident in my flesh, I'm on the precipice of falling. 
you know, falling into shame, to sin. But when I understand and acknowledge the weakness that my flesh, how it contributes to my spirit's desire to do good, because of how truly needy I am, it is then that I am in a better way to receive God's grace with a softened heart. Beloved, don't let your heart be weighed down with doubts and excuses as to why you are unworthy to be a servant of Christ. It's already a given. You are unworthy. The devil knows it too. Acknowledging this this fact, it frees you from being burdened by it. And the devil is trying to, will try to use it against you. In yourself, you are unworthy. The Lord makes you worthy. The Lord gives you his righteousness and takes your sin. Christ's righteousness. This is what makes you, right now, worthy to enter heaven's gates. It can't be taken away from you. No scheme of man nor even the gates of hell can prevail upon the gospel that has saved you. Another blessing to be had in the fuller knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, Peter writes, is multiplied grace, grace upon grace. Grace meaning the free favor of God, which is always firmly established in our positional relationship to Christ. Now, meaning positionally with Christ's righteousness accounted toward us, we have every right and privilege to come boldly before the throne of God with our requests, our petitions and supplications. Even though as we at present remain in the flesh and we sin, we are being sanctified and and as we struggle with sin, but positionally in Christ with his righteousness, we have nothing to fear of coming before God. You know, as Peter writes here in his greeting, it was very common um, in those days to well wish someone good health. Peter doesn't do that in his greeting. Instead, he prays. And one of the things he prays for is that they would have grace multiplied to them. The text reads that his grace comes in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I had mentioned earlier, one of the themes that runs throughout this letter is the knowledge of God. Grace comes in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord by way of or through the knowledge of God. Really meaning that such grace is not to be had without possessing this knowledge of God and of Jesus. A right knowledge. Why wouldn't we want more grace in our lives? Why wouldn't we want that? You know, what does God intend to do with the grace in our lives? It's, it's not to to satisfy our lusts and cravings. It isn't so that we can boast in ourselves in some way because of something seemingly extraordinary or special about us. 
that would be the world talking. The purpose of divine grace is saving faith in Christ and to increase our trust in him. That we enjoy him and glorify him. You know, faith, faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, such as hoping for eternal life, of the Lord's return, and the conviction of these things. You know, one of Peter's main objectives in his letter is, again, to argue for the conviction of the hope in Christ's imminent return. Again, what the opponents are rallying against. That he will return and he will judge. He'll bring his, his bride home with him forever and ever. This is grace and understanding these things because of the knowledge that we have of God. Now, why must this blessing of multiplied grace, why must it be dependent upon possessing this knowledge of God? Why can he just give it to us without knowing him? As I said earlier, when I understand, acknowledge the weakness that my flesh contributes to my spirit's desire to do good, it is then that I'm in a better way to receive God's grace. Because I was, my heart is more softened. This acknowledgement does not exist apart from a basic knowledge of God. John, in his gospel, in chapter 17, verse 3, says to know God and Jesus is to have eternal life. But what sort of knowing is this? If James earlier said that even the demons believe in that God is one, what sort of knowing is he talking about? You know, at the very least, it is a fundamental Christian knowledge that is gained in conversion. But there is much more to say about this salvific knowledge that we've been given. It is actually more accurate, really, better to say, more precise, if the text would be translated as a full knowledge or a fuller knowledge of God and of Jesus. That is actually a more precise way to put it, a full knowledge. Peter's already attributed a faith to his readers that is of a like kind, like his. You know, who better than the apostles have ventured further in faith and grace. Who better than them? But still, they, they still had much need for more and more grace in their lives to carry on. Just as Paul himself prayed for the church in Ephesus to be able to comprehend, to be able to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ to be able to comprehend this. This is grace multiplied. To be able to comprehend that, to, to know it, that is grace multiplied. It's the answer partly to the question, why is it needed to be in the knowledge of God to have grace multiplied? To know the, the breadth, the height, the depth, the love of Christ. 
to know God and his Christ more personally and deeply, to lovingly fear him and obey him, better, therefore, enabled to comprehend. That is grace multiplied. To have grace multiplied unto you will require you to seek God's ordinary means of grace. The ministry of the word, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. But the chief means of God is his preached word. Beloved, if we are to seek wisdom as if it were buried treasure, Scripture tells us to do that. Tell me something. Tell me, what would wisdom tell you is of primary importance in your life? Is it not Christ himself? And how does our God and Savior give himself to us but by his various means of grace? Remember, Peter is praying for this grace to be multiplied in, through, and by the knowledge of God in Christ. This knowledge, it comes to us through what he's given us. He's given us his revealed word. His spirit, it applies it to our hearts so that we can live it out faithfully, renewing our mind in the knowledge of God. You know, to neglect the means of grace that he gives to us is to despise it in some way. Beloved, always strive to take good care of your souls. Be grateful to God for what he has provided for you by his means. Gratefulness is it's healing to bitter bones. Let yourself be amazed that God is merciful to you at all. Do you ever lose your amazement of these things? We shouldn't. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Are you often shocked at who, who you are now and who you are becoming? Are you ever shocked at that? Amazed at what God has done and brought change in your life? To pray for multiplied grace, it, it's not to be satisfied and so rest in the present grace that you have or seem to have. You're always looking for more. Puritan William Ames, he commented about such men who are satisfied to rest in their present grace. He wrote, quote, they think they know enough believe enough, love enough, and therefore they neglect both the public and private means of grace, whereby they might be edified. The state of a Christian in this life is a state of building, building up. It's not one of perfection, it's one of building. Therefore, he should show himself to be a foolish builder 
that he should rest in the middle of his work and not make up the perfect structure. As if it were buried treasure, brothers and sisters, be seeking grace of God in your life. Beloved, now is not the time to rest in the middle of the work that Christ is building in us. We have yet been given the privilege to enter into our final rest. That day will surely come. Until then, we must seek to have God's grace multiplied in our lives according to his way. Even still, Peter in verse 2, he prays more for his readers. Which brings me to my last point, my outline. In verse 2, Peter prays for them to have another blessing. That is, peace multiplied. Multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Like grace multiplied, peace multiplied is to be found in the full knowledge, the fuller knowledge of, the recognition of, the acknowledgement of God and of Jesus. The moment that we seek this blessing of peace apart from God, away from the knowledge of him, then we are in danger of making an idol, of humanizing the blessing. Now, humanism is anti-God. And it, it spoils the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. This is not available in a right way apart from the knowledge of God. So what is this, this peace that Peter speaks of? Yes, it would be a peace that surpasses understanding. It surpasses understanding, but how? How? Peace in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, is one that rests in God's will. It rests in his will, whatever his will may be. Hymn writer Horatius Bonar, in his hymn entitled, Thy Way, Not Mine, O Lord, he wrote in the third verse in the second stanza, quote, as best to thee may seem, choose thou my good and ill. The peace that we have in Christ is encapsulated in trusting him through and through. And beloved, that is something learned on paths that are spotted with suffering. It's ironic, isn't it? But why else would we have a need, such a desire for this peace? We need those reminders, those testings. I want to speak now to the one who's tender in heart. A heart that's been buffeted. What Peter prays for, to be multiplied unto them, is for them to rest assured. To rest assured that, that come what may, if you be in Christ, then take joy in your Redeemer who will see you through 
this present darkness and dispel your doubts and fears and we'll bandage those hurts that run deeply. Rest assured, dear Christian, that you don't have to know all the answers of what will be, only that he is. He is love. He is all-powerful. He is loving kindness. He is all good. All that is in God is God. And he is sufficient for the day of trouble. Knowing God and Jesus Christ our Lord in this way, that is to have a peace that surpasses understanding. Psalm 139 expresses a, a kind, a very kind and helpful view of what living in peace with Christ looks like. If you'd like to, you can turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. The scripture reads, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. To possess this, this personal, relational, saving knowledge of God and of Lord Jesus puts the most weary saint in a peaceful repose. Christ is all of this, brothers and sisters, and more. He will be your strength in the battle. Will you let him? He will be your cover in the heat of persecution. Will you go to him? He will be your friend In crippling grief and loss. Don't you know this? Surely you do. I'm going to close here, but I have some final application. In his greeting, Peter honors the faith of believers. He honors the faith of believers. It is a like kind of faith. So have a special care for your faith. Be diligent about caring for your faith. Don't assume that it's going to take care of itself. It must be fed and washed 
that must be taken care of. Labor for the increase of your faith by attending to the ordinary means that, of grace that God offers. And many of you are not taking advantage of what God is offering you here at GFBC. Take courage in Christ. Take it. Are you fearful or are you peaceful? Can you see that how lacking peace in your life can be an issue of not trusting God, of not knowing him as well as you perhaps should? Understand this. Know, know this, that to have multiplied peace, which truly we all want to have, right? To have multiplied peace, it cannot be separated from divine grace in your life. These blessings of grace and peace, they're not the end goal. Uh, they're not the end goal, so to speak. Christ, Christ is always the end. All things are from him, through him, and to him. We learned recently in Sunday school that we must not attempt to go through God to get to the blessings, but rather as we go to God in a right relationship and in knowledge and receiving redemption and salvation, we will experience eternal blessings. There, they're there to have and enjoy as we are in Christ. He is the end goal. Beloved, seek to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Seek this. Peter tells us there are blessings to be had in the fuller knowledge of God. He tells us that the blessings are a faith of equal standing with the holy apostles. He tells us that in this knowledge of God, there's blessings of multiplied grace. And he also tells us in this fuller knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, there is multiplied peace.